Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. This week, Dan Wilson joins me. He and Sarah Brunt have teamed up to provide OSR gaming material that allows GMs to take characters to the astral plane and beyond. We discuss the origins of Planar Compass and discuss how they want to explore additional planes of existence in future products. It is time to sail the seas of the ether. Sisters and brothers, it is time to get rambling. Hello, Dan. Hi. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite uh, pleased to. So you put out a product, well, you and another person put out a product called Planar Compass. Yes. And uh, I'm going to ask, who is Sarah Brunt? Uh, Sarah Brunt is a longtime friend of mine, and she is one of the players uh, in my role-playing game. And uh, her, our, my original proposition to her a couple of years ago was, I really like your character. Let's write a comic book. And... Uh, so we spent some time not having either one of us done that before and not having either one of us having any particular illustration skills. We spent a good amount of time writing scripts. And uh, after we had written probably two and a half scripts, I, I kind of sat down and actually thought about the logistics of it. And I realized that there, there was no way we could afford an artist <laughs> and pay them at an ethical, at an ethical rate. Because if you look at how much art is in a comic book, and you think about how much it costs to pay an artist, it's thousands of dollars per issue, realistically, um, if not more. So we kind of put it aside for a little bit. And then uh, one day I was kind of just like surfing on my phone and Zine Quest popped up, which I didn't know what it was or anything. I think I just saw like Willow or some some interesting zine. Um, and I just kind of on a whim, like sent her, I was like, hey, let's like make a weird zine as our thing and just put it out there. And I think she was like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever, but, you know, and then and indulged me. So we spent a couple of weeks not knowing what we were doing. Neither one of us had put out an RPG product or a zine or printed anything. Um, so this was Zine Quest 2 at the time, so it would have been 2020. Uh, right before um, everything fell apart in our world. Right. <laughs> so we didn't know that was coming either. So uh, we put it together. We, we put it up at the time. It was called Dreamhaven. Um, and we put it up like at the very end of the month. Um, and it did pretty good. I think it got like $2,000, which was like, for us, was great. I was like, I didn't even know if, if anybody was going to back it, which was, yeah. and it worked out well because I think like, had it somehow been a phenomenon and it had been our first time, that would have been horrifying because we didn't know what we were doing. Right. You know what could have gone wrong so that was a nice number it was like enough to be successful but not so much that you know the problems would scale up exponentially if you know what i mean uh, oh yeah i hear you <laughs> <laughs> so we got it out and um you know as you said it's kind of like you know putting things out into the void because for the longest time it just went out and it was like crickets <laughs> which is such a strange thing so and i was like well at least we're not getting negative feedback, you know? And, um, but then it kind of like slowly, slowly built, built. And uh, I was, I shopped it around to a couple of the online stores and they, they, um, they sold it. And then it came around for Zine Quest three and we did issue three and it, issue two and it, and it, and it did 
Wonderful. So right now we're in the process of wrapping that up and, and starting to write issue three. Yeah, that's, I mean, jump right in. I mean, that's, you know, I, I was practicing with stuff beforehand as far as layout and I had multiple yeah. projects I've worked on myself, but, um, but that's kind of the way I do things. I just have this crazy idea and let's just do it and see what happens. Mm -hmm. and, and fortunately it worked out. Yeah. So, so so you came up with the idea of planner compass. So the idea is, is actually multiple things. So, you know, mm -hmm. looking through this, <clears throat> I, I realized, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, you have like 58 pages mm -hmm. in here. So I started thinking about, it's like, well, I wish there's more of this or more of that or more of this, or more of that. <laughs> and I looked, it's like, well, there's 58 pages. You're really, you're really. <laughs> yeah. You're really, yeah, I definitely. Yeah, you really can't go much further than that. Then all of a sudden you're you're losing size. But uh, yeah. there's a, a lot of content here. So I guess what would be your pitch for this? I mean, what what is the pitch for for Planner Compass? So the the whole overall goal of the zine, all the issues together, is to create a multiverse setting for old school essentials. Uh, and issue one um, gives you a home base in the center of the multiverse on this island called Dreamhaven. It's an island in the Astral Sea and people sail the Astral Sea to get between um, portals to go to different planes. So um, you can think of Dreamhaven as kind of like, you know, um, you know, a pirate island in uh, the Caribbean where, you know, everyone would go to port and all people of all types of uh, moralities and backgrounds would do their trade and you know spend the night and restock their ships um and then issue two will is as i said it's in the process of it's in the art phase right now so it's the last phase uh that's going to be about the astral sea itself traversing it the things that are out there getting to different um, portals and then issue three is going to be our first one about a different plane and then the idea is that generally do about one plane an issue uh, just kind of build it out from there that's a great idea. And I, and looking at it too, it's, you know, you've got location, adventures, uh, classes, sonics, sonic power. So you have a lot of stuff and, it, and it's actually kind of, um, you know, I was reading where you said for your influences, you know, one of them was Jack Kirby. And I looked at the cover and I looked at some of the art and it's like, I can't see that art. And then once I don't want to do any spoilers, but there's all of a sudden it's like, Oh, this culminates in a very Jack Kirby <laughs> creation. Right. So you, you, if, if the player, if the GM so chooses to let the players do this one adventure, uh, it, it does, uh, it does, it does right setting, at least in this yeah. location. So I thought that yeah. was kind of cool, which I, I mean, to me, I think what I like about, I mean, if you were to, a person was to reformat this whole thing mm -hmm. uh, for a convention and just, you know, maybe restructure a little bit differently. It's like that's a yeah. perfect convention, you know, game where this happens, you're here, you meet this, you do this, you do that. And it's like, oh my goodness, what am I witnessing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted, I mean, I guess, should we do a uh, spoiler warning or try to avoid spoilers? Yeah, we will go ahead. It's, it's your product. I mean, it's, uh, I'll just put, okay, we'll just put this out there. 
this will be a spoiler zone for the rest of the yeah we're not gonna i'm not gonna come back put a timestamp. so yeah it's it's been almost a year and i feel like anyone that's listening to it is there's a decent chance they're probably going to be a GM or a referee. So. Well, I know the other people that listen besides you and me is my mother and a brother <laughs> and one of my sons. So yeah. we better not spoil <laughs> it for them. Um, yeah, I, I wanted I, it, the idea occurred to me, um, and it was based on like I think um, the initial idea of, of the island as being a piece of uh, the celestial is what I call them in this that comes right from like monty cook stuff that he was doing um and i'm sure other people were doing but specifically he was doing um during second edition whereas like the actual plane is just full of pieces of dead gods so that was the initial kernel of the idea for the island so i was like well what maybe the god's not dead maybe the the, the body parts there and the god's going to come back for it well what what's going to bring the god back and i was like it's got to be player greed so we got we got <laughs> to put this thing that that is completely ancillary. It's not really necessary. It's a nice diamond the there on that ceiling. It's a beautiful diamond, <laughs> right, right? And it's it, you know it's not the only way off the island. You know, there's multiple. I tr- we tried to design it in a way that like this was not the way to do it. But you know, there's always that those people that like they're going to go for it if you put it in front of them so and i think those are the people that are going to enjoy something like that yeah and especially i think you know having to deal with ramifications once you do i mean that's the, the most important thing i mean i think you know you know as opposed to like a normal cthulhu or Cthulhu or how you pronounce it situation it's like which is fun but here it's like oh if you do this i mean it may be an indiana jones situation you're like <laughs> oh that's why there's a ship in the bottle of this guy's bar <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly the light comes on <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that's that's to me that's more interesting um that that's a memorable story oh yeah me. yeah yeah especially as you draw out it'd be, it'd be kind of funny if you're due to a convention and you put your hand on a piece of paper and then you're just to sketch the hand and say this is the island you know, yeah kind of like like people do with Michigan, I know people. You know, every Michigan's will hold their hand. They'll yeah. point to the point on their palm and say, "I'm from here," but uh, similar type thing. And then, uh, you know, I think that would be a, a stellar, uh, convention game. So yeah, you, that's brilliant. You chose old school essentials. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, you know, so why old school? But, um, I'm placing criticism on old school essentials. I know it is kind of the hot thing. Is that mm-hmm. what's your reason for choosing old school essentials? Um, at the time, it was what I wanted to write for okay. because it was uh, the product that, when I saw it, it was like a revelation to me, you know, because I was coming from <clears throat> Wizards of the Coast and Chaosium, and Chaosium is great stuff, but they both do the same thing, which is like they present everything with just paragraphs and paragraphs of text, and you almost have to sit there with like a notepad and study it and reinterpret it and i read the necrotic gnome stuff i was like this is designed for play like this is made by someone who's ready to sit down and play and i was like this is what i want this is this is what i i felt like something was wrong with me as a referee because i found it so hard to run content um but it wasn't me it was that the content was not presented in a way that's designed for play you know like 
really role-playing games in a lot of ways are closer to like instructions for a board game than they are a novel, but they're presented like novels. <laughs> so that was the thing that was exciting for me about old school essentials. It was like, I love this layout. I love the style of it. Um, you know, I'm not like I'm particularly in love with BX. It's a great system. It's not, I don't know if that's my favorite system, but it was just the old school essentials presentation of it was what excited me in that moment. Yeah. And I think the thing is, I mean, your choices are what you either go just quote unquote OSR generic, mm -hmm. or you stick a, a brand on. And I think yeah. both of them have their advantages. I, I think mm -hmm. there's definitely strong points because i mean obviously they're all kind of interrelated to, to a large degree but yeah so I, I don't know if if you know i'm going to put some i'm planning on putting something out uh next year but i'm probably not going to tie it to any particular any particular system but maybe i should i don't well that's a hard thing to decide i think um in retrospect you know, at that time, that was what inspired me. So it was easy, but I can understand um, the hesitation because, especially if you're doing something like what I'm doing, it's like, well, I've kind of made it a commitment now. <laughs> you are locked <laughs> like, in for, yes. yeah. Right. You know, and there's other, you know, other people who do it different ways. The, the, the person who's doing, um, what is it, stratometosphere or whatever? Yeah. Uh, the Terror of the stratosphere. Yeah. Um, they're taking the time to do it in d in is it dcc yeah. or mcc um dcc dcc even though it does appear to be a, a post-apocalyptic kind of thing right. it is dcc yeah so they're doing it in in dcc and troika which is like a simple system but that's still double the work yeah um so that's impressive to me that's not something i'm interested in doing but it's very impressive yeah, and I think with my, I'll probably keep it one way because it really, uh, most of it's just a generic reskinning of a, a portion of it, just a generic reskinning of spells. Okay. So, and then the other portion, I don't think I'm going to have too much as far as statistics. I may, we'll see. Yeah. Spells it, are not too bad though. Like, um, what was it like the Nameless Grimoire? That one's, um, I don't know if I'm getting that name. But um, if it is the right name, that one's very neutral. In fact, it's written for his system, but you can use it with like any OSR product because spells are really just like, you know, level and maybe duration and one other thing. And like, don't worry about it. Right. <laughs> it's not a big deal. And really a lot of it's just, even though I do put some of the rules in, it's mainly just meant to be a narrative replacement. Sure. Sure. So we'll see, but uh, yeah, it's uh, that, and it does, and it does seem like I say the old school does seem to be the 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 new hotness. Uh, I've never played Troika, so mm -hmm. maybe at uh, Gamehole Con I'll get a chance to try that system out. It's very cool. I we wrote a um, a zine for it, and we tried to do itch funding, but um, didn't really fly. Like it's just compared to Kickstarter's. Yes, like, <laughs> yes, you know being a bump on the underside of a log but i think sometime i, I want to go back to it and uh polish it up and, and get it printed or maybe go to kickstarter or something because i do find it very interesting because it's so open and loose um which tend to be the things that i'm into lately yeah i mean it, every everything that you i mean 
in that spectrum, I mean, it, everything has its advantage and disadvantages. You know? mm-hmm. It's like the apocalypse uh, world systems are very great for their openness, but boy, it sure does put a burden on a GM at the yeah. table to discern how they're going to rule every six or less. It's like, yeah, that, that was, it's funny because I tend to favor very interpretive games, but my reaction to the first time I was exposed to an apocalypse system, and I don't think I've even read the original one, but just the, the base mechanic was thinking like, oh man, I got to come up with a consequence every time something happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's like, after like the fourth one, I'm not going to be able to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I think, well, I think when you mechanic, when you incentivize um, improv through a mechanic, then I think it does place more of a burden, you know, but you don't, I don't know that you necessarily need to do that. I think you just don't need to define things. You know, but when you have a mechanic that says, and now you improv, yes, then that is more work, definitely. Yeah, then you just end up resorting to, well, okay, just take some damage. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. It's like the fifth time you ask a player, how do you kill the monster? They're going to go, I, I shoot it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I agree. And I, I think the good, I've noticed, because I've kind of been doing that for a while, but I know some other GMs, they'll just, They'll save it for just the the big fight or the big person, not every single one. So, yeah. Um, but um, yeah. So, so you added. Uh, so you've. I mean, so you have two new races. So I don't know. I'm not familiar with old school essentials. I do know it's. Mm-hmm. Isn't it kind of more of a cleaning up, a consolidating, and a and maybe a slight, some slight rule adjustments on BX? Is that? Um. It's. It's supposed to be a 100% accurate um, presentation of BX. But, so, um, but what's with the Sonic Powers? Because Sonic Powers in BX? No, that's our contribution. Oh, okay. Because yeah, I was seeing yeah. Sonic Whip and I like, that's advanced no. D&D. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the pure old school essentials as Gavin did it is just the basic book and the expert book combined you know re laid out represented and then he went through the work of clarifying some things that were particularly ambiguous but it's it's you know it's i guess my understanding is and i i've never sat down i've read bx but i've never sat down with old school essentials against bx versus labrador but it's it cues much closer to bx than something like labrador does um but if you've played any, you know, classic D&D clone, it's the same thing. It's the four classes and the four species. Yeah, just the difference is how, how is your armor class ascending, descending? Does it start yes. at zero? Does it start at ten? Yeah. You know, whatever. It's, 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 uh, but I, so you, so you took it upon yourself. The, I, I would say the, uh, I don't want to say unenviable, but you had sonic powers. Because obviously if you're going to be in the astral plane, Right? right, you can't be just be saying no to astral. So you create a class that that's got the ability. So it's not like with advanced D and D where you just you roll mm-hmm. and you get lucky and, and you get yep. a character. So how much time did it take to develop that? Uh, well, it's based on two E psionics, so I didn't like do it from scratch. So that definitely saved a ton of time. But it was a lot of trying to boil down two E psionics. Um, to like 
kind of like in a crucible to like where there was as little left as possible. Cause you know, anything with 2E is it's fantastic, but it's, you know, all kinds of maybe not unnecessary, but all kinds of layers of depth that you can add to it. Um, I've never played so, 2E. I've never either. I've only read it, um, but I think it's interesting. Um, it's, it's pretty close to 1E in a lot of ways, but the 2E Cyanx is vastly different. As you can see just from looking at our book, it's vastly different from 1E, where 1E is like, I haven't even honestly sat down and tried to <laughs> actually understand 1E Cyanx because it always like turns my brain off whenever I read that section. But when you figure that out, then you can go to the, the, the grappling mechanics and figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but it does, the unfortunate thing is it does turn off a lot of people because that's what they know. And they're just like, well, oh, I hate that. So I don't want your book. And I'm like, okay, I can't argue with that. I mean, I think that this is different than opening up, you know, the 1E player's handbook and reading that section. But, it, you know, I'm not going to sit here and argue with you if you don't like it. It's fine. We, we played with the Sonic Rolls back in, um, I was in high school. I don't know. I don't know how well we did it or how well we, we translated that. I kind of wish I could go back in time to see exactly what we were doing yeah. it's probably a bunch of nonsense yeah but, but it seemed like sonic powers at least in advanced dd if i recall correctly i'll just preface that is that sometimes it opens you up to actually more problems if you're not a very strong near sonic powers so sometimes yeah. having sonic powers is worse than not having it definitely in general changes the tone of the game for sure i mean i can i might even like particularly in love with psionics which is ironic for how much time i've spent on the subject um but it just like as you said it was the correct thing i felt to do for the setting i was like if we're going to do a, a, a universe which is about the mind and about consciousness well then this is like something that's not currently an old school essential so it makes perfect sense to introduce it um but i can understand why it's not necessarily someone's cup of tea because it's like it's hard to divorce that from something like scanners or something like that, where it's like, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's very modern by like a lot of people's perceptions. Oh, I, I love that uh, the, the old reference of scanners. Yes. <laughs> I'm impressed. Yeah, I have, I have, I have a couple uh, nuggets from before my time that I know about. Yeah, that's when they use practical effects, like a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, how do we simulate a head exploding? I know. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of those things where I saw that gif on the internet for years before I actually saw the movie. And then I saw the movie and I was like, oh, that's what that's from. Cool. Yeah, I don't know if it holds up. I don't think I'll go back and watch it. I think it's a cool movie. I mean, it's it's, it's one of those things where you got to go in setting your expectations. My son's um, been wanting to watch horror movies. I suggested he watch the original Halloween. And I yeah. watched parts of it, but it's like, it's ter it's a terrible movie. It's not good. <laughs> it's not scary. It wasn't yeah. the time, but it's just like, wow. It's like, uh, you know, sometimes I think. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, slasher movies in general date really quickly. I feel like because they're usually about you know a, a novelty, and then that novelty right. becomes the standard. And that's Whereas, why like, I told him before we watched it. It's like you know maybe it's afterwards. Like yeah, they. Everybody copied from that. So what you're watching, whatever you watch nowadays is now just an iteration off of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it was not the first slasher movie because yes, it was the first, but I think it's probably the most, the earliest, very successful slasher movie. Definitely. 
So, yeah. But I mean, there's old horror movies that I think do hold up. Yeah, hey, I won't watch a, The Exorcist. I won't watch that again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's like a truly cursed movie. <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> there's certain movies like something happened where like they tapped into something. Yeah. I think it just it's seems like, so real. That's the problem. Right. Like the original Alien, like having Giger making that suit with like human skulls and stuff. It's, there's nothing else like that original alien movie no because i think probably even scarier than the movie would be would be actually having a movie about himself (laughs) (laughs) i watched a documentary on him once and it was like the most depressing afternoon i've had a long time fascinating and like gorgeous art but yeah super dark yeah he has to go (laughs) some pretty bad places and you look at some of that stuff like wow that is you know and i understand appreciate people who write fiction like gk chesterton talked about you know writing mystery novels you have to kind of get in the mind of a murderer and you got to think about some bad yeah. stuff yeah. but i don't think many people go as far as Giger does. it's no. like I, <laughs> yeah Giger is like almost like an snl character where it's just like so so comically depressing you just be like one, one thing after another like and then when i was four years old i saw a body on the floor and you're like okay dude like sl- <laughs> slow down a little bit like i know you're like you're like swedish or whatever but you're coming at me at a different in a different energy level that I'm not used to. Well, I think, you know, you know, going back, I mean, that's was a perfect artist for that for that movie and, and set mm-hmm. that tone. Yeah. I think didn't the original uh costume of the creature actually have like a like a baby face or a human face and it's got a, like um I think it's a real human skull in the Oh dome. yeah, that's right. Um he like hand assembled that costume like a sculpture wild he would come in like at like one in the morning and do it at night when nobody was there like it's really like that's what i'm talking about like there's like almost like a mysticism going on with certain types of movies and projects where it's like other it becomes like legendary you know well i think it, even going i guess we'll just do the segue i mean i think is the mood for for uh the gear did for aliens the concept art where it looked well i i think there are really I think the art is really great for for the planner compass, at least the first uh scene. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean I, I you know, going through that, I mean the, the, the cover is beautiful as far as all the coloring and such. But mm-hmm. the interior art is just it's it's very it's very fun. It doesn't take itself mm-hmm. too seriously. It's thanks to a number of influences from other people in the OSR. I can see Jack Kirby in the background on some mm-hmm. of these. Um, so, so you couldn't do a comic, but you said, you know what, we could do enough art between the two of us. Well, we got Chris, um, that was like kind of the, the thing for the Kickstarter, because it was like, to actually make a zine, it really doesn't cost anything. I mean, oh, I see Chris Downey here. Okay. Yeah. So that's really the, all the, all of the, with both issues, um, the real, the cost of it, that, the, that is the Kickstarter's production cost to ship somebody a printed thing and paying other people because it really doesn't it doesn't cost us anything to make a zine um and to print like a one proof that you showed us in stores costs like 50 bucks but like you know to pay a good artist that's that's where the value was um and then issue two we have two artists we have chris comes back and then we have mike um joining i think chris did a fantastic job he really he 
he identified the tone and the vibe, I think, and the need to find it. Like, I think it, like his artwork is the face of the project now. The, uh, I, so I got a project where I was able to, uh, there's an artist who is partnering with me. Otherwise, I would not be able to, well, with just me, we actually have another writer and another person doing uh, some hex maps, not hex maps, but they're maps, shaped maps. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it makes any sense, but uh, yeah, it's there's no way I could have afforded the amount of art. I made some plants even when he started contributing in case I didn't have art that I had, you know, some sort of images, but he just kept delivering artwork. And I just was just like, there's there's no way I could have afforded it without, you know, somebody doing that. But it's you're right. It is is expensive and it's rightly expensive. I think it's, um, unfortunately, I think it's not expensive enough, really, if you think about it. Like, I, I, you know, I'm not like trying to pat myself on the back, but I'm just like, constantly trying to push the people I work with just to ask for more money. Like, because I, I don't see how artists can be paid an ethical wage. Like, I don't see how a picture takes, <laughs> like, you know, if they charge, like, let's say, I'm just throwing a number out there. Like, let's say an artist charges $100 for an image. Well, I mean, break that down into hours, you know what I mean? And think about how long it took them probably to make that image. There's very few artists that can do something in like two hours. Right. And you know, just hand it off. I mean, it depends on the, obviously, the complexity of it, how big it is and whether there's color or not. But I, I think artists, I think everyone's vastly underpaid. But well, <laughs> I think but, artists are too. But the only way you, for you to pay an artist more is you have to get paid more. Yeah. And it's, well, that's where the that's where the crowdfunding comes in. I mean, yeah. we we actually actually haven't really made any money, but it's allowed us to do big projects, essentially big. Yeah, well, I, I my Kickstarter hit the same about the same level yours did, and uh, yeah. so, and I understand what I, I would have said and done. <laughs> you know, I figure out my 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 hourly wage. It's not very good. No. That's okay, but I did I did at least get one cover. I did was able to pay a decent for a cover but yeah as yeah. far as the others like there's you're stuck you're well i'll say stock that's not a good idea but you know unless you get enough sales you can't afford anything but maybe stock art and maybe a couple pieces from an from an artist yeah it's very hard it, it takes a long time i think now we've been doing this for a year and a half which is really a drop in the bucket compared to a lot of people but we're just starting to get to a place where maybe we can start to front projects you know so i see people out there that are funding projects um and i'm thinking they either they're doing fantastic or they're using their own money <laughs> because and at the indie level it's like it's 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 tough you know it's a hobby right now well and i think too if you look at the cost i mean you may look at somebody making two thousand dollars or even like with ben um I think I get him back on, but making I don't know, like fifty thousand. Like yeah, you start cutting, you, you know, all the paper, the printing, mm -hmm. the art, you know. Then then all of a sudden the, the shipping, yeah. And and then you all know, get to think about just the amount of time and stress just to actually do the shipping. Yeah, yeah. I, I was stressed shipping packages out. Yeah, <laughs> that's why I got a um, fulfillment for this one because I was like. The first one was fine, you know, it was like, I want to say it was like 130 physical copies. So that was like, it was slightly stressful, but it was like a fun little week yeah. where we just stuffed envelopes. 
But I was like, if the next one get, is bigger, I'm going to start to have some, you know, problems from that. And then it was much bigger. So I'm very happy we did fulfillment on the second one. Um, but it's definitely, it's so hard. And as you said, like, you look at tens of thousands of dollars and it looks like a ton, but, and and this is when, like, I try not to, like, be um, negative to, I don't want to, I don't want to call them consumers because that sounds so cool, but like, you know, the, the people who get the stuff, uh, the enthusiasts, the hobbyists, the, the buyers, but like some of them, it's like, well, where, you know, why didn't you spend money on this or this or you got all this money? Are you going to do this? And it's like, no, you don't understand. Like two thirds <laughs> of that cost is like printing and shipping. It's not like $40,000 yeah. ends up in Ben's pocket. You know, I got $500 at the end. Okay. After, <laughs> <laughs> after all this, you know, they sound like a lot, but I would have made more money spending my time working at McDonald's. A hundred percent. Yeah. So you got to love it if you're going to do it. That's at least right now. I don't know. It probably will never change. It seems like the thing's growing and growing, and maybe someday some people will crack the code and make a, a living. Um, some people have made the jump, but they're generally, I think, doing bigger projects that are, you know, have a lot more art and a lot, you know, like they're, they're making book books. They're not making zines generally. The zines are just like fun little things. But I think, I think maybe if you were, if you had the money, the, the cushion, the neg, the, the nest egg to, you know, take a year and try and put out like six to eight zines in that year. And you had the distribution, you might, you might be able to make it. It'd be really hard though. Yeah. <laughs> like really hard. So if you look, there are certain key people, uh, Tom Wilson, who does the gamma zine. Mm -hmm. So he does the writing, does the editing doesn't pay anybody for get some stock art doesn't really pay anybody for doing layout yeah you know and and he's able to keep a cadence and people are buying you know i could see where for him it's like he's actually doing okay and you're right yeah. he could be making you know per year if he's doing four products a year it, it yeah. it's not bad but to make it's it, doable you yeah. got to be able to you got to be able to make that jump though and if you have a career that jumps extremely hard to make it just is. because it takes so much time, you know, um, and the do it where you have that kind of output, you either got to have nothing going on when you get home or you got to have nothing going on during the day. Yeah. It's one yeah. of the two. Um, it's, you know, I think Daniel Sell uh, once said to get the author of Troika, you know, he always tries to give advice and throw ladders down. And one of the things like, you know, step one, for doing this is don't have commitments <laughs> and don't have children or something like that because it was like you gotta you gotta be, if you really want to make a go of it you gotta have that that freedom and the potential like to have a smaller lifestyle you know um yeah and i think especially you know doing this for the first i mean not the first time but being new at it it's just we are very inefficient you know maybe you're not mm -hmm. i just know I am. <laughs> So like I, I did like uh, so like well, I did uh, the scoundrels. I mean, it spread over three zines. I you know it was originally gonna be one zine, then it was gonna be one mm -hmm. book, and then I decided to split into three zines for Zine Quest, and then yeah. trying to make changes consistent across. When I say okay, I hate this font, 
I got changed on three different products and just like, Oh my goodness. I mean, there's so much that I, you know, bad to see. Well, I was a bad decision. It just, you had to learn, but it's just, we're just not efficient at, you know, writing or layout. That's definitely, there's, there's no way to get faster than other than putting the time. Exactly. It's it's the only way to do it. It is, I guess it's the same way with illustrators. It's like, you know, if you illustrate for 20 years, yeah, maybe you can pop out, you know, a drawing in an hour. Um, but if you if it's your first year doing it, you're going to struggle to do that. Um, same thing's probably for writing, you know, and you got to figure out also, I think, it's kind of like any other project. You got to figure out when is the optimal time to do something in the project. Like, you know, you've probably realizing that fonts are probably one of the very last things you should do. Um, it's hard to know that up front because you want to play around like, all right, I'm, I'm trying to design like to cultivate like a, a certain a vibe or whatever. You know what I mean? It, it, we all do it, but you really got to you learn, you know, when do you do what and what phase of the project that's going yeah. to cause the least amount of cascading problems. <laughs> um, yeah, I still don't follow that, that advice. I just... <laughs> <laughs> Or that, that guidance, uh, that, that method, I just still, I, I, I probably think about fonts earlier on, even though. Well, I'm not saying that's, I'm not. But I know what you're I'm saying. Not. That's the, that's the, the main thing is the first thing is to get it written. Yeah. And I, well, I think I, the one thing is I've really come to understand now with working with editors is to have what is essentially, ideally, if you want to do this and collaborate. You want to ideally be able to produce what is essentially a plain text manuscript. Yes. Um, I didn't realize that until like after we were done issue two, because we were in the beginning, we were doing it like ourselves, but started working with the editor and I started to feel like an idiot because I'm giving him a highly formatted <laughs> document, you know, and it's like, I realized like, I really like, I should have given it to him in not the most raw form, um, but like Microsoft Word or something like yeah. that, Google Docs is yeah. Because I ran the same thing. I got the I got my I sent it to a copy editor. She was very good and she did it in, in the PDF under content. Yeah. That was a mess for me to deal with too. Yeah, and it's like having a PDF open on one, having my you know identity uh, publisher on another, and then still trying to figure out which word or what thing that that particular comments applying to yeah i was it was a mess no you're right as far as that goes you do not and, want to uh right yeah and i think it's hard though because it's it's a medium that is not like traditional publishing because you're you're trying to think about how to present things right and so much of that is visual uh, how much is on one page and even though that's technically the layout person's job as the writer you're still thinking about that what is this table going to look like where's this table going to go what's the stat block going to look like where's the stat block and then as you're thinking about that inevitably you want to kind of lay it out right um so it's 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 tricky because the traditional way i think i'm not you know a, you know, published writer or anything, but like traditionally, like someone would write a novel, they would have a very, you know, raw script and they would hand it over to the editor, right. the transcript, and the editor would, you know, begin to 
help mold it into what would become the book. That doesn't entire that model, I think, doesn't entirely work for role-playing games because it is a game. It's more than just text. You know what I mean? Well, I think if you like so do you use um do you use Scrivener? No. Okay, so I love Scrivener, but you can it's kind of you can do it kind of like an outline. But mm-hmm. I, I think as as I go through there, it, it's hard if if you already have your format down. Like for instance, you you've got, you know, let's say Planner Compass, you got it down. And let's say you're going to do the similar type of thing for each of your of your next zines. And yeah. each each is going to have two classes. It's going to have a it's going to have two new races. Mm-hmm. You've already kind of established your word count for each section sort of but but probably when you started this you probably didn't know what you wanted right no and i don't <laughs> i think it, truthfully we still don't know what we want because part of the idea is is to sort of reinvent it every time yeah um, there's a lot more work but i think it's more interesting but there's especially... gonna be a point where you're gonna say you know what this is this is there's gonna be a point where you say i i feel that this is a similar structure, even though you may adjust the oh, layout. Yeah. But I mean, you're going to say, "No, I know what you're saying." Yeah, but but for me, like a lot of times, we do it for the first time. Don't know, you know. It's like you're both wanting to see what it's yeah. going to look like in the end, but you're also building it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's where, for me, I think I kind of sometimes just have to work both ends, even though it's not, you know, it is not efficient. Yeah, but I don't know. I don't know what three hundred words means. I don't know what five hundred words. Means. I don't even know what my layout's going to be. It's like <laughs> right. It's right. like I figured like three hundred words per page on average. You know, that's why I try and calculate how. Like, I'm afraid that my next Kickstarter, I, I was going to try and keep it into one zine, but I think it's going to split two, mm-hmm. just because I I just don't stop. You know, I just I don't know, yeah. and it's hard to say. But but I think also for me, part of it too there's a certain point where I kind of need the, I think the inspiration of seeing something like a final product helps me be motivated to write. Once it gets to a certain point, you know, then it's like, okay. And then it's like, okay, then I kind of need to understand which things I need to cut down what things I need Mm -hmm. to add. But it's, I think once we get like, if if this journey to the Madlands, what I'm planning to release on August, if it succeeds Kickstarter, we'll do a smaller zine and I think I'm going to try and just keep a smaller format. Then I can just tell the writer this many words, this many words, this many mm-hmm. words, and it'd be simple, mm-hmm. but if anything new, I can't imagine just, I don't know. It's hard. It's very hard. And I think that's the one advantage you have when you're doing it alone or in a very small team is like, yeah, it's a lot more work and it's less efficient, but, you can kind of, as you said, approach it from both ends. You know, like I did the layout on issue one and it was a, a lot of a, a headache and a ton of work and I definitely didn't know what I was doing, but it was causing me to think about the stuff as we were creating it. You yes. Know, where does it slot in and how am I going to present this? And then with issue two, we had a layout person um, and they did a fantastic job, but there's a little bit of that like oh you're you're touching like my thing now <laughs> and, and uh i that's not exactly how i would have done it but that's okay you're better than i am but still like 
you know, you, you got to let go. <laughs> or you got to seize control and say, I don't care. It's going to be mine. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the, that's the key is you got to be able to like wipe your mind and say, I'm done with this now. It is now someone else's thing. Yeah. That's the only way you can do it. Because otherwise you get, you're trying to puppet someone and it doesn't work. No, no. And I, and, and I'll say, you know, layout is such a tricky tricky thing uh it is it is it is it's hard to get like super right i mean when you see it you know it but mm -hmm. it's but a lot of times it's it's it can be it can be annoying if you don't do if you break when it's bad it's really bad there's there's some i'm not gonna name any names but there are some kickstarter projects that i think you know they went to the artistic level but my goodness it's just it's <laughs> unusable i can't my brain right. cannot like you just your low contrast white text on it it's just like on dotted pink i can't read yes. it my brain doesn't even want to read it it's just like it, yeah you know. i think if you're gonna do that stuff you have to be a master i was saying to sarah the other day because i i got a copy of of Morkborg and i was showing it to her and i was like there's a huge difference i think I'm not trying to like be mean. I just am being honest. Like there's a huge difference between Morkborg and a ton of the third-party Morkborg stuff because the third-party stuff is aping Morkborg, but they don't have the mastery of the yes. person who laid out Morkborg. That yes. person was a master and they understood how to push it. Yes. You know what I mean? And if you're just mimicking that, you don't always know entirely why they're making the choices they made, you know? Um, it's like trying to be, you know, an abstract painter, but not having any background in painting. Like, yeah, maybe you can do it, but, you know, if that, if Pablo Picasso arrived at where he was, he didn't just like start doing that out of the gate. And that's the reason why he's Picasso. Exactly. So, yeah. And again, I, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be mean. I know that a lot of these people worked hard, but, you know, if you're going to go for that, that high concept stuff, you you got to have the chops to do it yes really i agree i agree and uh it's it's i think yes and I, I i try i think with mine i try and push myself just a little bit each time i do mm -hmm. something that i just know i don't have chops to do anything crazy well i mean you can't you can't compete with someone who's been doing it in their day job for 10 or 20 years it's just not realistic you know yeah and uh, i think that's just it i mean it, it's you know there's most of us who need to follow the rules mm -hmm. and then there's the people who are masters because they know how to break the rules properly yeah. they, they you know it's uh and it's just it's true for anything really you know writing mm -hmm. you know it's just like you can be kind of you know like some of these other people who, who maybe are popular in what they do but it's like you say trying to ape them is it's it's it doesn't come across well <laughs> no. no and you're and you're losing the journey they took to get to that spot too you know which oh. i think is really important oh it is when i think the thing is is, is it's kind of like it's if you just take a a uh try and imitate a cover so a comic book cover or whatever, mm -hmm. and just take the time. You realize just how hard it is. Yeah. You know, it looks so simple. It's just a little bit of text here, a little bit of text there. Cause a lot of times I'll yeah. take a magazine. I'll like 
start a layout and kind of say, well, I wonder if I can do something like this. And you're like, wow, that's that's not that, even though it looks clean and simple, there's a lot of thought that went into that. Right. Absolutely. Even like the 60s comic art, like might look crude by our standards, but it's highly professional. Um, and it's extremely difficult to do. Um, it might look in because now, like, people they're used to like Jim Lee and, and these people who are almost photorealistic, and they go back and look at Jack Kirby or someone, and it seems almost childish. I don't mean that it is childish, but I think it's, for some people, it might look that way because it's so much simpler and, and more stylized, but you couldn't do that. <laughs> I mean, if you if you spent a ton of time drawing, you could ape it, but you wouldn't be Jack Kirby, you know. Well, and I think you know, right? I mean, it's the it, it is the amount of energy that leaps off the page right. that it's it. Right? How do you quantify that? Mm-hmm. You know, sure you can mimic the, the crazy poses, right? And the the weird perspectives, but you know, those crazy machines that you know the Eternals right. or whatever. It's just like you can't uh easily do that and i think it's so i i got the marvel limited so i've been sort of reading through the comics and but it's like there was the eternals comics but even looking at the celestials artistically they look better but they just aren't the same i mean this jack kirby celestials they are yeah i don't know there's something about them that makes them feel alien in a way that yep. these others don't yep Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, I don't know, I don't want to get too um, into saying like that there's like a kind of a, you know, a unique talent that some people are born with, but there's definitely some people who just appear to have a certain spark or something that like, <laughs> that they're just on a, they're just on a different level. I don't know if it's because they literally spent four times as much time working on their craft than other people or if they're just somehow inherently unique but um i well i think there has to be for some people a certain amount of uniqueness i mean it's yeah it but i think but i think like you do say there is it's putting the time in it's a lot of it too yeah but i don't know yeah i mean i don't even know why kirby turned out to be kirby you know i don't how does somebody come up you know producing all the the crazy wacky stuff that he did mm-hmm. for being a man of that generation i don't know yeah i know yeah well same thing <laughs> with ditko i mean ditko was a straight age conservative and he made dr strange and all this other stuff um you know and that's what i didn't like about the movies is because i right. really wanted the ditko right crazy it's like right. you kind of did a little yeah. bit that that should have been it you know it's yeah it, it's uh, it's weird because the other stuff is is like kind of not afraid to get weird so i don't know if it was that particular director or the writer or what but if you look at something like thor ragnarok that's almost even though it's more stylized it almost feels like the most comic book movie i've ever seen i agree like, i was watching this and i was like this is actually what it feels like to read a classic comic book and most movies don't feel this way. And it surprised me with Doctor Strange, movie about magicians, where they spend most of their time fighting with swords. <laughs> I don't understand yeah. this. It's, I think it's a competent <laughs> movie, but it's, I think it's kind of forgettable. 
um but it's not the worst superhero movie I've ever seen. No, it's not. I agree, but it's just like it's kind of weird that this, some of the things that just made it so good. They just like I don't know. They were afraid to. You know, I think I think it's like kind of some ways you're hitting with like Ragnarok. It's like it was like you know, hear a director, you got a vision. We're not going to worry about. I'm not saying to worry about any boundaries, but it's just like okay, let's just do this thing and not feel constrained. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think they couldn't have done that until it was already like the 35th or 43rd movie or whatever it was. Like at that point, Marvel was probably like, all right, I guess we can like, we can throw one out there and see if it sticks to the wall now because they're really in a lot of ways, you know, fairly conservative in terms of like what they were willing to do for all. Have you seen uh, The Black Widow yet? No. It, it, I was really kind of, it, even with movies, there's still these kind of things I always feel kind of like, uh, there's always like these dumb, dumb things like, eh, mm-hmm. eh. but actually, I, they, you know, like I've told people, it's like, there's a woman directed the movie. Mm-hmm. And in the best sense of the word, I can say, I can tell a woman actually directed the movie because there was much more emotional connections between characters. <laughs> That was actually believable and yeah. emotional. I mean, emotional. I'm just using that word, but it's just like, you know, like maybe, maybe all these other people can learn a little bit from this and slow things down and actually mm-hmm. make things connect in ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, hopefully, we can mature to the point where we just everything's just a, a CGI fest and <laughs> we just. <laughs> explore other things and having characters be more than just what they can destroy yeah yeah that would be interesting <laughs> maybe we'll see so do you so your plans mainly just to stay with the with the planes with your projects yeah. yep yeah i think that i think it'll i hope that it will give us the opportunity to to have a lot of diverse experiences um so we'll see what happens you know maybe we'll get five in and get burned out and give up um but like i think the the thing about a setting like this is you know we can do you know american folklore one issue we can do something else another issue because we're not stuck in like you know, this setting is just medieval Europe or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So, and I've never played Planescape, but it, I guess mm-hmm. it's similar to the just not Planescape. Planescape. What's the one where it's a city with all these uh, that go to different dimensions? That's Planescape. Yeah. So, kind of like a Planescape kind of thing. Yep. Is that what you're kind of going for? Yeah. Planescape and Spelljammer are, are two of the big influences on it. Um, I haven't played planescape but it's just the ideas of it uh, yeah i kind of thought about that myself it's like you know I'm, i don't know i'd ever run as a dnd game but it, i kind of thought about buying into it i don't know I, I like the concept i just don't know that i i don't know how the execution would work out yeah it's tricky <laughs> i mean I, it's always been a very interesting like the idea of the planes have always been the thing that what for whatever reason hooked me in D&D early on so it's always been something like I've always been trying to do as a player or write as as a as a DM so, so when you say like planes are you talking because I mean you could look at planes it's kind of more in the straight D&D sense where 
mm-hmm. a plane of fire, a plane of earth, a plane of yeah. this or that, or you could look at it maybe from another one where there's just alternate realities. Yeah, I I think I'm more personally interested in um, the D and D approach, just because I think it gives you more interesting content. You know, what I mean, inter- alternate realities could be fascinating for like a single campaign. But like, how do you, like? Well, I don't know. That's interesting. It'd be hard <laughs> to do alternate realities. I think. Um, <laughs> But yeah, this is definitely like a more coming from a more traditional D and D view of a multiverse, where like each plane is very different from the next one. So I think with there two gradations e, of it. Yeah, two E. I think they probably went more into document because that was probably the time I stopped playing on D and D. So I think there's a lot of stuff I was never aware. And I'm always wondering, like, how do you handle this? How do you handle that? But yeah. I'm sure that's already been discussed and dissected and. And so there's plenty of ideas to, to go by and probably know which things to touch and which which rails to not touch. And uh, yeah, I, I generally try and not read things <laughs> because I'm so deeply fearful of inadvertently ripping stuff off. Um, so I, I my approach is like take what I do know and and try and bring my own thing to it. You know what I mean? Well, there's a so one of the thoughts. When I was just doing my rambling uh, development for uh, Pain of the Fly Gods, was having a plane where there's a no, it's for another one. That's for this one. So there's a there's a, a god that was basically struck dead by chaos. There's like a blade that was pierced, but he's just it's slowly dying. Mm-hmm. But and then there's like things feeding off of it. And okay. so, and maybe some people may have some people mind, but then I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. But then I realized, as doing some reading, that uh, in the Guardians of the Galaxy, the the I think that one place, I can't remember where they went to find the collector. Uh-huh. That was in the head of a celestial. Yeah, yeah. And then I was reading one of the one of the Marvel Limited, one of the newer comics. I can't fear. I don't know what it is. So I, I find some of the stuff a little nutty. But yeah, there's a celestial that had its head cut off, and I think it's like stuff's oozing out of it. And there's a guy, it's a big thing. It's like creating a problem between, I don't know. It's like, no, I guess even though I didn't necessarily know about this, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's original. <laughs> it's like, right. And right. I'm sure everybody's just like, oh, you read that? It's like, well, no, I didn't. But I'm sure that all this yeah. stuff has been in the background churning. Absolutely. And it's not really that original. Uh, nobody's really doing original stuff in, in, in a lot of ways. Just kind of having a fresh take on something. Yeah, I, I don't really, I don't really believe in originality. I think it, originality is just your own inability to recognize the context of something. You know, it's like and, and things that are seem original now is because it's survived and we've lost all context for it. We don't know, you know, what that person was taking in when they created. Yeah, it. like try be a songwriter today. Right. Of course, you're ripping off Grateful Dead, and you're right. ripping off. Right. Uh, you know Robert uh, Plant and whoever I don't know whoever else is going to be, but it's just it's just how do you how do you how do you disentangle all that? You know, it's just I don't know how it's impossible. Uh, yeah, I think I don't think I don't think that would even be the way to go. I think you should embrace your influences. Um, at least that that's my philosophy. You know, I I wear my influences on my sleeve. Um, so if somebody feels like I'm ripping off 
I can't do anything about that, you know. <laughs> I don't think I'm ripping things off. I think I'm combining and and mutating and, and making new things out of out of this primordial stew, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's a there's a poem by Roger Kipling called uh, I think it's called when Omer uh, smote his uh, liar, mm-hmm. liar, how you pronounce it. So the idea is Homer stole from everybody, and they winked at him. And he winks at us. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, you know, you, you know, you go through the types of stories. I mean, if you go through novels and such, the plots and there's, mm-hmm. it's just very difficult to actually get away from, you know, we can't, it just, no. we just have to provide our own, our own iteration, I guess. Of, it's already been done a thousand times. Yeah. Yeah. Or find a way to turn your, your brain off and, and, and be Kurt Vonnegut or something, but I don't think it's realistic for ninety nine point nine percent of the population. You know what I mean? Like, I think you, I think it's the human experience is, is to participate in this culture and, and add to it. And if you if you're trying to do that in a bubble, I don't think you're going to be successful. And also, I think in a sense, it's it's hard to sometimes relate. I mean, I think with settings that are too obscure and without really any touchstones it's hard to actually mm-hmm. engage with it where you know obviously everybody knows what an elf is yeah you know there's no there's a dwarf and sure you made your own version but that allows people to actually without having to do you ever play uh um i can't pronounce temple oh, okay. it's a j uh the mrr It's a pre, it's a it's a guy it's Parker was his name. Um, Is it a tabletop game? Yeah, he, he basically was a contemporary with uh, in the seventies. It's Pecumel. Ah, by M A R yeah. Parker. Empire of the Metal Throne. Metal Throne. Yeah, yeah, it's like you know that's pretty dense stuff. It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. That's something we're like uh that's so academic it's fascinating um i've never played it um it was that's something i didn't even know existed until i got into the osr uh, but yeah that's that's definitely that's a world you need to live in in order i think to do it if you ever i read- think Glorantha's almost to that extent yeah i think RuneQuest gives you doorways in but it definitely isn't I was saying on Twitter the other week, like I want to get into request, but it's very intimidating because the setting and the system are so intertwined. Uh, at least in the current version, it seems like they've gone back to meshing the two. And I know they tried to divert, divest them for a while, and it, with controversial success. But now it's like I know. I, don't know. I like okay. making settings, so I don't know if I want to like necessarily dump my time into someone else's setting. You know what I mean? Well, I think the what the, the advantage to that would be understanding because he he kind of went with more a mythological. I don't want to say maybe pagan's not the right word, but it, it is actually the religion ties in with the people in a very right. or more organic way than D and D ever does. And I yeah. think I think that sort of stuff you can infuse without necessarily having to infuse the Florent. Sure, but you're right because I think you know the deities. I mean, it's about me worthless in the way i've ran games in the past or i've seen other people run the deities it, 
the cleric is just a magic user. Yeah. Sword. Okay. Yeah, it's such a. That's something that I Tui, I think, tried to do in the most interesting way is they took the time to, and this is carried on to subsequent editions. So it's still kind of the DNA is still in there in fifth edition where they tried to take it down and say like, all right, if you're this type of cleric, you have this type of weapon and you have access to this set of spells. So they fractionalized it even more as opposed to the Gygax cleric, which is one cleric, they're all the same. It doesn't matter where you're cleric of Thor or cleric of Frey. It's the same thing. Yeah, you know but, what I mean? but what does that mean from day-to-day life? Like, the other thing is like- That's hard. You, were, you know, <laughs> there's an organizational structure usually with religions. Mm-hmm. And especially at earlier levels, you're not going to be high. Like, like, are you not like being directed by the higher ups in your in your religion? Yeah, well, that's that's the why would a cleric be in the wilderness in the first place? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Same thing with a same thing with a wizard. Why would a wizard not be in his tower? You know, doing magical studies. Right. Um, I think there's a. I think you have a good point though. Is like the religion. It becomes like almost just flavor and just flavor because there's no implications for it. The best thing you can do is hope for a really good, and this isn't even me, but the best thing you can do is hope for a really thoughtful referee who is able to, um, since the system doesn't exist for it in d is able to constantly be analyzing that player and thinking about that player's, the character's role in the religion. You know, I mean, That's a lot of work. If the game doesn't incentivize it, as you said, I don't, I've never played RuneQuest, but my understanding is RuneQuest does have the systems to at least incentivize the religion. You know, even what's the day-to-day life, week-to-week life, you know, right. it's like kind of like, if you kind of look at like maybe even like Roman religions, those times past, if people would, people were religious, not necessarily always going to temples, but they was probably mm-hmm. given of alms or attending certain ceremonies or just, mm-hmm. just it was part of their everyday life. You may be a shrine they would maybe throw a coin to or something that just doesn't really seem to, I guess when you're, if your game's more about just getting XP, maybe you really don't want to be bothered with that. Yeah. Well, and that's one of those things where, yeah, I guess it depends on whether it's fun for the table or not. Um, I've played in games where the religion was more important. I'm at the point now where, the cleric class, you know, it, mechanically, it's just, at least in the old school d d it's so clearly just the middle ground between a fighter and a magic user that it's like, there's almost no point in having it. Other than, like, it exists, you know, to cure and to turn undead. So let's just give that to the magic user or whatever. You know yeah, what I mean? Just, Where it's like, yeah, give just give him a, the class. Yeah, <laughs> give him a domain or a, a, a set of spells. You're right. It's just, the right. point is... Yeah, and I think it's and, and then you can make religion for everybody, you know, make a religion mechanic. And because it, it also doesn't make sense that, as you said, if you're living in a, a polytheistic universe, that only the cleric is participating in religion um, and only the cleric receives the experience of it. Like in a polytheistic world, as you said, everybody, well, the majority of the people would be participating and would be interpreting their participation as having real world effects, right? Yeah. So the fighter would be making offerings and the fighter should be receiving boons and magic or whatever, you know. Yeah, it's just uh and I think the idea is, you know, you going back to days of demigods, it's just like, you know, religion's just really seen as just stats and mm-hmm. not really like, you know, they put these 
these gods in there, but they don't really explain what that really means for people that, that worship them. And also people with, yeah. you know, you talk about polytheism, it's like, you know, there was also, you know, there may be, you know, a people dedicated to a certain thing, but they still worship a variety of gods. And or if Rome, they accepted whatever that, whatever that thing was, they just, they'd conquer, bring the new gods in, just add it to their, to their group. Okay. You know? Exactly. <laughs> it's like, and so they 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 didn't really have any problems with that, but it just I don't know. But it gets goes back to what people want. But it just I just wish that in a sense that since there's nothing put in there, it, there's really not much direction given. That really good ways of handling. Which no, but D and D is also like it's a trope game. Like it's 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 specifically at least originally it was like about you know emulating sword and sorcery pulp fiction you know what i mean it was like you go down in the dungeon and you steal gold from dragons so it was the religion's almost like it's strange that it's even in there it's like so clearly because like one character back in 1973 one player wanted to be a religious character you know what i mean and so you know either artisan or gygax sat down and made the cleric and now it's there because it's one of the first classes but it's like it totally is like not in line with the goal of the game, I think. No, I mean, it serves a mechanical purpose. Turn Undead is very important if you look at the, where the game was back then, because the game is like it's just zombies and dragons, you know what I mean? So you need someone to deal with the zombies, that makes perfect sense, but it doesn't entirely. It's weird because it's created its own trope now, but it, it, it's kind of doesn't mesh with the rest of, of, of the atmosphere of DD as it was in its original creation, I think. Yeah, and, and and again, it's like when you're dealing with miniature fighting, and uh, you you want to have some ex reason to, I guess, be able to heal up. You, yeah, it's just right. It's like, so I guess it's it's God that does it. You know? Yeah, that, that solves the problem. Yeah, and that's that's a that's an interesting. Well, yeah, I think we're starting to hit the uh, time space continuum. I agree. We can go on for hours and hours. So. Uh, we'll have to have you back on the, the rail week. <laughs> we'll have to have you back on sometime. <laughs> Sounds good. It'll be fun. All right, you take care. All right, you too.